Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hi. So, finances. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, this feels like such a chore for organizations of any size, but yeah. especially small organizations. Yeah, I mean, it is a chore, but it's it's a necessary evil. Like, you have to brush your teeth, you have to brush your <laughs> hair, you have to take the garbage out, you have to care about your finances. And they have to be in good order. Otherwise, the risk to your organization and all the hard work that you do is just, it could be astronomical. It Absolutely. could literally put your organization under. That's right. Um, but there's, I love it with this interview with uh, Gordon Hawley because he talks about the also, also the upside of having your finances in good order mm-hmm. and what that could mean in terms of conversations with funders. And also, I think there are processes and ways to think about your finances that actually make it a little bit easier to manage day to day. Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, I remember experimenting with. Uh, Back in the day, uh, was tracking our social enterprise spending in our in our program budgets, um, which sounds like okay, like whatever. But it was actually really interesting because we found ourselves in conversations with funders, and they would ask us, "Oh, like, have you heard of this whole like social enterprise thing?" And I'd be able to pull up my budget that showed exactly what percentage of our program costs were dedicated to social enterprises, and their eyes lit up because they understood now that their investment in in our organization was doubly invested. It went to the program, and then it was spent uh, with the social enterprise as well. So it was like a really cool way to think about bringing um, uh, our, our work on our finances to life and, and, and to our benefit. Absolutely. I think that this is such a critical episode of the podcast. Agreed. Because it talks about something that is really the lifeblood of your organization. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about compliance, but it's also about, you know, being forward thinking for your organization. And as you said, really understanding uh, the impact of the money that you do have. That's right. That's right. And there's, there's so much possibility, like when, especially as charities, if we all get really good at like, especially bottom up budgeting, right? So accounting for your actual program costs, like building the budget from the ground up rather than sort of aspirationally saying, I think this is how much it's going to cost. I mean, that's that's obviously important. But then tracking your actual expenses against those mm-hmm. and then starting to understand where you you actually have power, where you have wiggle room, like where you're making spending decisions versus where volunteers are making spending decisions. And, you know, you start to get a more complex picture of your organization when you understand it at the at the financial level. Yeah. So... If you feel like your budget and finance needs a little bit of tweaking or you're completely overwhelmed and you don't know where to start, this interview is for all of you. There's so many great insights. I can't wait for you to listen. Gordon Hawley is the president and CEO of Humanity Financial Management, Inc. As a CPA slash CA for almost 25 years now, Gordon loves helping individuals and organizations that are trying to make the world a better place. He excels at providing financial oversight to small and mid-sized nonprofits and charities to help them better manage their internal finances and financial budgeting and reporting. Ultimately, his company hopes to instill confidence and credibility in organizations by streamlining their internal financial management, 
so that they can focus their energies on their programs. Gordon, welcome to the show. Good morning, Cindy. Glad to be here. So I'm really excited to talk about finance because I feel like this is something that organizations, especially small ones, really struggle with. It feels kind of like a black hole and there's always something to learn, but it doesn't need to be that hard, does it? You know, it's it's a really interesting question. Um, finances for nonprofits, particularly small ones, uh, are a bit of a challenge um, because uh, it's a fairly complex environment, particularly the way the Canada Revenue Agency uh, regulates the industry. Uh, the rules are often complex. Uh, I mean, you know, the basic compliance stuff isn't that hard. You know, you you hire a good bookkeeper. Um, you give them a good accounting package and uh, all goes well. Getting regular reports shouldn't be too hard. But the, the difficulty I think that many organizations have is that they struggle to stay on top of the CRA uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. So what are those CRA requirements? I'm sure there are too many to list, but tell me a little <laughs> bit about the ones that you find organizations struggle with the most. Sure. Um, so, first of all, when we talk about nonprofits, uh, the CRA actually differentiates between not-for-profit organizations and charities. And mm-hmm. according to the CRA, you can only be one of those. You can't be both. So you're either a nonprofit or you're a charity. And depending on which one of you, but depending on which one of those you are, uh, the rules are different. Yeah. Um, and- we talked a little bit about that with Mark Bloomberg as well, who's a, a legal expert in the space. And hopefully, if you're listening, you know if you're a charity or a nonprofit if you're in Canada. And of course, if you're in the States, sorry. <laughs> similar, <laughs> similar structure there, right? Like there's the um, 501c3, 501c3 designation, yeah. um, which is similar to charitable status here in Canada. Yeah, so... Um... With respect to charity, well, nonprofits um, have a number of rules that apply to them, and Mark probably went over the differences, so I won't uh, duplicate it here. Um, but, but the primary uh, issue with nonprofits is, um, interestingly, uh, many nonprofits are either organized or operated to earn a profit in part of their operations. They have some form of earned revenue. Um, whether it's rental income, whether it's uh, you know sales in a thrift store, or um, and any of those, and often, uh, in fact, the CRA just did a study uh, between 2012 and 2014, and they went out and did something called a nonprofit risk identification project, where they, uh, I think, they looked at uh, a significant number of uh, nonprofits and came to the conclusion that about 45 percent of nonprofits were currently offside the CRA regulations around um, earning a profit. Uh, wow. so, it's, so it's a fairly significant, um, and, and the rules are complex, and most nonprofits just don't know what they don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the CRA tries to make all of this information available on its website. Um, but uh, I mean, frankly, even, even many of the, the external accountants, even if you're having an audit done, uh, don't know the rules uh, specifically related to nonprofits and charities. So it can be um, it can be hard for nonprofit uh, leaders, particularly in small organizations, if they don't have the expertise in-house uh, and if they don't have somebody uh, uh, locally that they can, you know, ask and help make sure that they're on side. But I'd encourage everybody to, to talk to somebody. I hope, you know, maybe on a volunteer basis, 
Um, it's ideal if you can get a, a treasurer who's a CPA that can look into these things for you and try and uh, interpret uh, some of the, the documentation on the CRA websites. Um, but, but I can totally understand how people could feel that it's sort of this, uh, I think you mentioned the big black, big black box of scary stuff um, mm -hmm. around finances uh, for small nonprofits. Yeah. So let's talk about that role of treasurer because we do see that often it is filled. Well, if it's a board member, right, that's a volunteer position yeah. and they might be, you know, a CPA or a bookkeeper or something like that in their professional world, but not specific to a charity or nonprofit. So how do you equip them with the tools to be able to understand those complexities that they might not have experience with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are, uh, well, so first of all, we generally recommend that, that virtually every organization, I mean, you know, once you're sort of beyond the smallest organization, the sooner you can get a treasurer as your CPA, the better. Uh, sorry, uh, as soon as you can get, the sooner you can get a CPA as your treasurer, the better. Um, there are a significant number. Actually, there's more CPAs in Canada than there are uh, charities and nonprofit organizations. So uh, it shouldn't be all that difficult. Um, and there are a few places you can go to look, and I'll, I'll talk about those in just a minute. Um, but having a CPA as your treasurer can really help keep you on side. And even if they're not from the nonprofit sector, they'll be able to go and do their own research and figure out uh, what the issues are. There's also a course, we offer a course called the Certified Nonprofit Accounting Professional, uh, which helps people who have moved from the private sector and are currently either, you know, they, they, they want to do more bookkeeping work in the not-for-profit sector or they want to be a treasurer in the not-for-profit sector. And frankly, even for, um, you know, uh, senior management and board members, anybody that wants to know what the accounting rules, uh, the accounting and tax rules in the nonprofit sector are, um, and there are, there are courses like that. Um, the, the CRA has a significant number of, of uh, you know, videos uh, on their website. They've got a significant number of interpretation documents and guidelines. And uh, so the information's there. Um, I think it's really just uh, finding somebody like a, like a treasurer who will do the research and get up to speed on the issues and be able to advise you properly. So, Gordon, you mentioned that you would have uh, that you have places where people can find CPAs as potential treasurers. Where do they start to look for that? How do you find them in that sea of professionals? Yeah, so great question. Um, there are, um, as, as I mentioned, I think there's actually more CPAs, significantly more CPAs in the country than there are nonprofits and charities. So that it shouldn't be too difficult to find a CPA as your treasurer. Um, I'll say there's three or four places you can go look. Obviously, if you know any uh, CPAs, that's the first place to start because personal relationships, um, you know, if you ask, most people will probably say yes. Uh, so it's worth asking the question to people you know. Mm -hmm. um, second, your auditor. Your auditor, um, you, you wouldn't want to have your auditor as your, um, as your treasurer because there's a, a conflict of interest there. But um, there's no reason that you couldn't have somebody from either within uh, their organization that doesn't work on your file um, or they're going to know other accountants that may be looking for opportunities. Uh, third, there's an organization called uh, Charity Village. Uh, and you can post uh, essentially wanted ads for board members and volunteers for free. Uh, and the fourth is your local uh, uh, CPA uh, organization. And those are provincial. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, for example, there's one in BC called CPA BC. 
uh, and they will often take uh, wanted uh, or or job postings for volunteers for free as well. So you can you can actually uh, post it on there the CPABC website, and that'll go out to all of the CPAs that have signed up to get uh, notifications of those types of things. So um, those are, and then uh, contacting local CPA firms. Um, you know, I've got, I've been in accounting for 30 years, and so I've got connections at um, a significant number of accounting firms, and most of the accounting firms are actually trying to get uh, their accountants to get volunteer experience and board experience. So I know that but particularly some of the larger firms have a mm -hmm. standing um, requirement that all of their CPAs from the junior most CPAs to the senior most CPAs get actively involved with boards, uh, you know, both to give back to the community and to, and to learn um, how those organizations operate. So I, I think there really are lots of opportunities um, and it's really up to organizations just to, you know, take the bull by the horns and, and go make it happen. Fantastic. So definitely prioritize making sure your treasurer is a CPA. The other question I had is around uh, payroll versus um, consulting, right? We see a lot of yes. people misunderstand the difference between an employee and a consultant. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's risky for organizations? Yeah, this is a great question because this is probably the singular biggest financial risk that many small to mid-sized uh, nonprofits and charities face. Um, you know, for well, for example, um, the CRA has very specific rules about who's considered an employee. And for the most part, the CRA is going to try and classify everybody as an employee, because if they're an employee, then the employer is required to deduct uh, monthly income taxes and CPP and, and uh, EI and remit it to the CRA. So they get their taxes collected in advance. Um, with independent contractors, the CRA doesn't get any money in advance. It's up to the contractor to track how much they owe the CRA, make quarterly remittances on their own, and then file a tax return at the end of the year to declare all of their income. Um, so the CRA has a vested interest in, and, and this is the way the tax legislation is written. Most people in any kind of regular service to an organization are considered employees. Um, and then, you know, there are generally, uh, there are legitimate independent contractors. For example, uh, our firm is an independent contractor. We're incorporated, we pay WCB, we have a GST account. Um, you know, these are all, uh, we have uh, business cards with our own name on it, not the name of the organizations that we're serving. Um, and so accounting firms, law firms, marketing agencies, these are true, you know, uh, independent contractors. There can be a significant gray area where, for example, you want to hire a part-time bookkeeper and they say, well, okay, um, uh, I'd love to work for you, but I want you to pay me as an independent contractor. Um, and, you know, depending on a lot of things um, uh, in the relationship, uh, the bookkeeper may appropriately be an independent contractor or they may appropriately be an employee. There's a document on the CRA website, and it's called, I think, employee or self-employed. And there's a they have a they outline the CRA's position on who's considered to be an employee and who's considered to be an independent contractor. Um, I will say, and I've made this um, in other presentations, I've made this observation that I'm 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 generally of the view, and I think most accountants would agree with me, that the senior most employee, uh, the senior most um, person. Uh, staff person in any organization is likely to be considered by the CRA as an employee. 
So for executive directors and CEOs, particularly if you're the first one in the organization hired, it's unlikely that, that if the organization were audited, that the CRA would agree that you're an independent contractor. Even if you've got, you know, three or four or five organizations you're, you're working with. The, I've mm -hmm. seen the CRA classify people as um, uh, part-time employees for five different organizations. Anyway, it's a, the, the rules are complex, um, but if you have any questions about it, I'd encourage you to talk to your treasurer or somebody on your board or an accountant or a lawyer that's familiar with uh, these rules, um, and then make sure that you put a, appropriate agreements in place. Uh, every person that you hire, whether it's an independent contractor or an employee, should either have a contract of employment in place uh, or an independent contractor's agreement. Um, and, and I will say that, um, generally speaking, uh, it's significantly less risky if the person you want to hire as an independent contractor is incorporated, because that generally shifts the risk from the organization doing the hiring to uh, the person being hired. So if it's questionable at all, um, you want to make sure that the person is incorporated, uh, in which case there's relatively low risk. If they're not incorporated and the CRA does an audit and finds out that they really were an employee and you should have been making remittances, they can potentially go back years and the, the interest and penalties can be devastating. So you can end up with, you could potentially end up with a tax bill that could literally put you out of, put you out of business. And so it's a really, really important issue that many organizations aren't nearly as aware of as they should be. So I'd encourage everybody to get really good advice around that. Thank you for that. That is definitely a huge risk. What, so one of the, one of and that's a really great strategy for organizations. If you can't bring this uh, skill into your organization through staff, definitely look at volunteers and a volunteer that's in a position of holding some fiduciary responsibility. Um, right. Now, that is still a volunteer position, and there's only so much time that you can extract from your amazing <laughs> volunteers. And I, yep. I, the executive director still needs to have a common language around that, right? Around the books, around the accounting. Um, and so obviously they can access those same resources. But what are the things that you think, like you said, um, good bookkeeper, good accounting package and regular reports. I yep. think that report piece is where the language, like that common language. And so what are the things you should be looking at on a regular basis to make sure your organization is good financial health and um, compliance? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, what's interesting in the, in the for-profit sector, it's really simple because the organizations generally, all, most of the reporting is around profitability. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty straightforward. In the nonprofit sector, people try and understand what the, what the, what are we trying to achieve from a financial perspective? Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's really two or three things uh, that stand out. The first is uh, financial health and financial sustainability. So do we have, for example, enough cash in the bank account or um, revenue streams that if something happened to one of our funders or our donors or our programs, we'd, we'd be able to weather the storm? So, do we, for example, do we have a, a strategic operating reserve um, you know, generally the recommendation uh, is that organizations have somewhere between three and six months um, of available cash in the bank uh, in a strategic operating reserve to cover them in case something unexpected happens. Mm -hmm. um, and that's hard to do because as a small nonprofit, you're out there trying to raise money and bring in funds just to support, you know, keep the lights on and, and support your day-to-day -day operations. 
It's really hard to conceptually take money away from that and hold on to it and not spend it in the given year. But but I can't tell you how important it is um, to reduce stress and anxiety in the organization, provide some comfort to board members that you've got some financial sustainability, uh, and frankly, just to... um, uh, many organizations think that that will cause problems with funders, mm-hmm. and that hasn't been our experience. Uh, our experience has been that yeah. if you know how to have the right conversations with funders and tell them the reason that you have the strategic operating reserve, they actually really like it. They, yes. they like to deal with organizations that are that are trying to look out for, for um, their own financial stability. So financial health and stability is great. And then the other thing you want to be looking at as a not-for-profit is cash flow. Um, do you have a cash flow projection that will an annual cash flow projection that will identify any shortfalls in cash going forward over the next 12 to 18 months? Mm-hmm. Really useful tool um, and really underutilized. Relatively few people, relatively few organizations uh, prepare cash flow projections, and again, it's an opportunity to uh, reduce the stress and anxiety around finances with your staff, when your board, and with your funders. If everybody can see that your expected cash flow, uh, your revenue streams are going to more than offset your expenses, um, and you're not going to go into the hole at some point during the year unexpectedly, then you're in good shape. Excellent. Um, you know, the other thing, making sure, uh, if you can, to have an available uh, uh, credit line so that if something did happen uh, and, and there was an unexpected cash shortfall, you'd be able to weather the storm for, for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really just the standard reports, which are the, you know, every, all, the, all the board members should, at a minimum, get a, a, a balance sheet or a statement of financial position and a statement of operations or, or income statement. Um, and then the comparison of budget compared to actual. So certainly even in the smallest organizations, um, the budgets can be fairly simple, but all organizations should be doing a regular budget and should be comparing their um, their oper- their actual operating results to budget on a regular basis and showing those to the board so that the board gets a sense of how the organization is doing relative to the expectations that were set at the beginning of the year. Excellent. And how often should the board be looking at these reports? Because I've seen boards that meet twice a year and I've seen boards <laughs> that meet every four weeks. Uh, that's a yeah. big difference. What Great do you question. Yeah, it's a great question. I think here's here's the issue. Um, for organizations that don't change much, boards can meet less frequently. But it has to be the board members that really turn their mind to, okay, I have a job to do as a board member. And there are certain things that, that I have to do in my governance role um, to make sure that the organization is healthy and achieving its mission. Uh, and if the organization's not changing much, it kind of runs like clock, clockwork. We've got the revenue streams in place. It's financially healthy. I'm not worried about cash flow. Um, you know, we've approved the strategic plan. We've approved the budget. Everything seems to be uh, rolling on tap and you don't expect any changes. Well, maybe you can meet less often. You know, I, I'm not sure I'd recommend twice a year. I think at least quarterly mm-hmm. um, would probably be uh, uh, a minimum for most organizations. Um, and then if your organization's going through a period of high growth or there's significant change going on, that's when we start to see organizations meeting monthly. Um, so I, And I see organizations periodically switch. They go, you know what? We've been meeting quarterly, but things are starting to change now. We're ramping up, so let's move our meeting schedule to you know every two months or once a month. 
And I've seen other organizations move the other way where, you know what, we've been meeting monthly and there's really not much change happening these days. So why don't we, you know, go back to, you know, uh, once every two months or, or quarterly. So it's really up to the board, I think, to determine um, the appropriate number of times that they need to meet in order to fulfill their, their governance role. Fantastic. And from an executive director's perspective, so we've yeah. kind of, I think we've covered the things that the board should be paying attention to, right? So we have the balance sheet, the income statement, budget versus actuals, cash flow, um, and reserves. Yep. But what else does the executive director need to worry about operationally around finance that doesn't always come to the board level? Yeah, well, I think um, ultimately the well, best practices certainly are that the board approve a budget at the beginning of the, uh, ideally before the beginning of the year. Uh, and once that's done, the the executive director really has um, a mandate to uh, run the organization and stay within budget. And I think it's really critical that um, the organization have at a minimum an understanding between the executive director and the board at best, a policy that outlines what the executive director's responsibilities are. For example, um, the executive director might be responsible for just staying, um, making sure that the net surplus or deficit at the end of the year is close to the budgeted net surplus or deficit and may have complete flexibility with respect to revenues and expenses. If more revenues come in, then she can, uh, he or she can spend them. If, you know, they find that their payroll costs are, um, you know, 20% over what they expected, then they can reduce uh, other expenses by 20% and still come in um, at, the, at the budgeted uh, net surplus or deficit. Other organizations, uh, once they've approved the budget, they want the executive director to stay within each revenue and expense category. So, for example, they may require that if the executive director wants to spend more than um, you know, more than 10%, uh, more than what was budgeted in a particular expense account that they need to come to the board for approval. Uh, so I think having a really clear um, understanding between the board and the executive director with respect to what the executive director's re um, re budget responsibilities are uh, is really important. You don't want to have surprises at the end of the year uh, where the board has one understanding and the executive director has the other. Yeah. I think the, the other thing that's really useful, sooner rather than later, if an organization has either multiple funders or multiple programs, um, is to start your bookkeeper and your, and your accounting team or your finance team tracking your revenues and expenses by funder or by program. So we see organizations, uh, certainly the, most of the organizations that we deal with, um, track uh, all of their spending, not only in the regular GL accounts, but they also track them um, by program and project and by funder and contract. So at the end of the year, they can uh, see how they, well, or even during the year, they can see how they're performing. And in fact, um, uh, if they're, you know, the executive director is often um, program manager as well. And if that's the case, then the executive director would be reviewing those reports uh, on a monthly basis to see how they're doing compared to the budget. And, oh, and by the way, they're tracking the revenues and expenses by funder and by program, but they're also doing their budgets by funder and program. So that rather than just tracking a budget for the organization as a whole, we're actually tracking uh, budgeted revenues and expenses. Uh, we're doing budgets that way and we're reporting actuals that way. 
And that's primarily for the purpose of the internal management, whether it's the um, executive director or whether they've got program managers, to monitor the ongoing uh, revenues and expenses by program and to make sure they're staying within their respective budgets and then you know, taking corrective action where things aren't going according to plan. I think that's really great advice and very practical, right? Like that, that, that just sets you up to have great conversations with your funders. It makes reporting easier. One of the questions I can see in the audience's minds as we have this conversation is around overhead. Because when it comes yep. to program budgets, I, there's a lot of misconceptions around how to track and incorporate overhead into those. And I think if you can set it up in your in your bookkeeping and um, accounting effectively, it sets your whole organi- organization up to be uh, more stable in terms of how you think of and track your overhead expenses as potential programming expenses. Can you talk a little bit about where they fall and and how to think about them within that programming structure? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the th- it's one of the areas that particularly small organizations uh, struggle with, um, and this is where you really need the skills of a good bookkeeper and a bookkeeper that's familiar um, with with cost accounting or allocating expenses between um, not only various GL accounts but also between programs and funders. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two different types of costs. Well, there's all kinds of different types of costs, but for the purpose of this conversation, we'll say that there's two different types of costs. One is direct costs. So these are costs that support a specific program or project. And obviously, if you're allocating your costs to programs or projects, you would just allocate that entire invoice to that program or project. Really easy, no allocations required. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we get an indirect cost. And an indirect cost is something that supports, you know, multiple programs or all of your programs. For example, uh, your rent. Okay, so how do you allocate that rent between the various programs and projects? And this is where um, most organizations uh, struggle because they, they don't, they haven't even thought of coming up with the need to come up with a methodology to identify which expenses are um, these indirect expenses or overhead and how to come up with an allocation methodology that makes sense. And these can be really simple methodologies. They don't need to be complex. Um, You know, the CRA requires that um, you come up with a reasonable allocation method uh, and that you stay consistent from year to year. Um, So now it's great if you can get some help from your bookkeeper and your treasurer or your external accountant uh, on that. But, uh, but it's, but it's something that many organizations don't turn their mind to. And there's a real need for it because Mm -hmm. what you really want to understand as um, a program manager, and, and often the, the executive directors and CEOs uh, take on that role, particularly for smaller startup organizations, um, you really want to understand the true, I'll call it fully loaded costs of running a program. Yeah. You know, for j- just as an example, um, many of the federal funding programs uh, put a limit on indirect costs or overhead costs of anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15%. The reality is that um, most organizations have overhead rates that are closer to 25 or 30 or 35%. And so if you're actually tracking 
the uh, costs and allocating your indirect costs to different programs and projects, you can actually go back to the funder and say, look, this is what it's costing me to run your program in overheads. You're only funding, you know, a third or a quarter of the, of the overhead costs. We have to go out and fundraise to cover the cost of your program. You've got to figure out how to get us more um, funding for the overhead costs. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you can't even have that conversation with funders if you're not allocating your overhead costs to the various programs and projects. Yeah. So, so it's a really important piece. Um, again, I'd, I'd encourage you to really, um, hopefully you've got a bookkeeper that understands uh, good cost accounting and can help you um, identify and allocate uh, the appropriate costs uh, to the different programs and to different funders. And I think most organizations are clear on this, but I want to specifically call out staffing costs within that because they can kind of go in both buckets depending on who and what. Can you talk a little bit about what is a uh, direct program staffing cost and what might be a more um, general administrative staffing cost? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I want to step back for a second and say that um, as a general rule, we'd encourage all not-for-profit organizations and charities to have their staff track their time using some kind of time tracking system. There's lots of free ones available on the internet. Um, you know, you can do it in a general way, have everybody track their daily time on, you know, an Excel or something. Um, but, uh, but the new programs are so easy uh, and so low cost that uh, finding a program that works for your organization um, is usually a good idea. And it's a really important piece. And this, you know, generally the staffing costs for many organizations are going to be their, the majority of their costs. They can be, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% uh, of your total costs of running your organization in the nonprofit world. And so in order to allocate those costs appropriately, first of all, you have to know, um, you know, where people spend their time doing different things. For example, a CEO of a small organization. They'll spend part of their time on admin. They'll spend part of their time on, you know, supporting the board. They'll spend part of their time managing programs. um, And they'll spend part of their time, you know, fundraising. Well, you want to be tracking the amount of time that person is spending on each individual program because there may be one program that they're having to spend an awful lot of time on. um, And you want to be able to capture their expenses and allocate the expense of, of their salary or, you know, hourly rate, however they're getting paid. You want to be able to allocate it appropriately to those activities and those programs. And so, you know, an example of a direct cost, for example, would be a program manager for a specific program. If you've got one person and that's all they do, they only work on that program, you would allocate 100% of their salary to that program. But as I say, going back to the example of the executive director or CEO, if they're working on multiple things, which most uh, EDs and CEOs will do, you need to be able to allocate their time. And we find that that people's memory of how they spent their time isn't actually very accurate. There have been huge <laughs> studies of this done in the professional services industry. And if you don't track your time that when you're actually doing it, like during the day within, you know, half an hour of, of actually um, working on a particular thing, it's going to be hard to remember. You're going to be making guesstimates. And, and our experience in the research says that the guesstimates just aren't anywhere near as accurate as we, as we think they are. So again, I go back to encouraging organizations to be using some sort of technology tool to help them track their time. Uh, so that they can allocate their salaries to the different programs, projects, and funders. Excellent. And that is so helpful when it comes to grants and, and 
other funding resources where you can accurately ask for what you need to be able to run that program. So it's such an opportunity to get the resources you need to be successful. Yeah. And, and this is the key, Cindy. I, I, I want to uh, just expand on this a bit because many organizations, particularly, particularly when they're starting out, are thinking about bookkeeping as a compliance exercise. That they the only reason to do bookkeeping is so that you can you know do your payroll or or do, track your sales taxes or report to the CRA at the end of the year, and you know you've also got to report to your board. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, if you design your um, bookkeeping and accounting system well, it can actually give you really good information not only for managing your programs and projects, but also for uh, having uh, really meaningful conversations with funders. Mm-hmm. And this is what we've seen so often is when, you know, we work with organizations and they, um, we help them redo their chart of accounts and their reporting framework. But we start off by asking what kind of information, what kind of financial information would be really useful either to the board, to the management team, or to your funders. And then we design the accounting uh, and reporting framework so that the information that comes out is useful and meaningful, not just for compliance but for actually running a better organization, mm-hmm. uh, having more impact, ach- achieving our mission quicker, being able to attract more funders, being able to have the right conversations with funders. There's lots of ways uh, that, there, that there's incredible value in the financial systems if they're set up properly to begin with and you're actually tracking um, the things that you need to to make the, the best decisions. I think that is such a great way to end our conversation because that really is what it comes down to, right? It's not it's about empowering your organization to have the information to make strategic decisions, to grow effectively and to be successful and have a, a bigger impact in the world. So, thank you so much. Joe, oh, you're very welcome. Where can people learn more about some of the resources you mentioned or the services you offer? Oh, well, certainly uh, our website at uh, uh, humanityfinancial.ca um, would be a great place to start. And, and I'd encourage any of your uh, listeners, if they have any questions about this stuff, I'm happy to take a five or 10 minute phone call. Um, so if you go up to our website, all my contact information there, um, don't hesitate to give me a call. I'm happy to, uh, happy to talk you through uh, an issue or anything specific uh, that you're dealing with and hopefully at least point you in the right direction. Thank you so much, Gordon. It was a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.